My subject today is a relaxing subject, if you like. It's not a decisive issue, it's not a decisive emotive subject. And you may well regard it as an entertainment, and in many ways it is. It's four French novelists, four French novelists who shared a, a common cause. They were collaborationists, is the usual term used. Uh, under the German occupation, they collaborated with National Socialist Germany, and in four different ways paid the price of defeat. These four writers, for obvious reasons, have sunk into some obscurity, not as much obscurity, I venture to suggest, had they been British. Um, in France, there is a certain, or has been until recently, a certain tolerance, in, at least in intellectual circles of writers, whatever their opinions. And that has meant that these writers have been in France maintained and remembered. They are very much unknown outside France. Well, certainly two of them are very much unknown outside France. They are very attached or were very attached to their language and were very French. And when I quote from them, I will quote in French because I think that so much is lost in translation that it's, I almost would question whether in some cases, in one particular case, it's worth reading them in translation at all. The four writers who I wish to look at very briefly, because we've heard a lot this evening, are Pierre-Drew La Rochelle, Louis-Ferdinand Céline, Robert Brasillach, and Alphonse de Chateaubriand. I first heard of these writers when I was reading publications by the French New Right, an organization, or sort of a group term for organizations, um, which published and still publishes Elements Nouvelle École. And in these publications, I frequently saw mention of these writers, so I became interested, of course. And I turned to them, and I was sure that these writers would have a lot in common, because I thought these are more or less fascist writers, and they're going to be identifiable as such. And I was very, very surprised, and this kind of part of my talk, this was the question mark of my survey, they turned out to be very, very different. These writers are about as different as you could expect any writers to be. And the question I asked myself is, what did they have in common? What was the driving force that made them do what they did? I have to make a small digression here um, about France and the French and my personal interest. Uh, at school in the 1960s, it was very much the view that the French were, at least it was in my school, unhygienic, unsporting, all-round losers, and everything in France was worse than in Britain. The country was dirtier, the prices higher, the men and women filthy, incompetent, and untrustworthy, and above all, they were losers. They lost all battles where the English were involved, and twice indeed needed the British to save them from the Huns. This was, I believe, for the younger of you, you won't remember, won't know, but certainly in the 50s and 60s, this was very much the popular view of the French. Uh, I've bucked the trend a little bit um, for personal reasons. Um, I spent my holidays when I was very young in France, and I was very happy there. I could do more or less what I want, and I just messed around. And in my memory, the sun shone every day, and I have no unhappy memories of my holidays in France, except for the last few days when I would be sent back to school in England, where I was completely miserable. And that made such an impression upon me, it's always been slightly difficult for me to call myself a British nationalist. And it's always been quite difficult for me to live in England because the impressions one have, has in one's childhood are very strong. So that Joan of Arc was 
more of a hero to me than Henry V. And that's the way I am. I'm sorry, I have to say that because that's the background. <laughs> However, be that as it may, it seems that in later days, the cheese-eating surrender monkeys, as the Americans chose to call them, have shown, or seem to me to have shown, a little bit more resilience, generally, uh, to the new world order than my own country. Be that as it may, these four writers showed themselves immense resilience, immense dedication, and yet are radically and dramatically different. My first writer is Alphonse de Chateaubriand. He was born in a family which originated in the Netherlands and came to France uh, in the 17th century. And he lived in the, uh, the borderland between the old kingdom of France and the duchy of Brittany. Uh, contrary to a caricature of the traditionalist or a caricature of the fascist or national socialist, which the left usually holds, the man was profoundly patriotically pacifistic. He was appalled by war in principle and not only in practice. And this is in marked contrast to characters such as Trotsky, Lenin, Patrick Pierce, who wrote apparently in favor of, um, or who dreamed of peace but seemed to be fascinated by war. To be fair, there were many who welcomed the First World War before they became part of it. And all the four writers I'm looking at were involved in war and were soldiers. Chateaubriand was a national pacifist. It's ironic that while the theory gathered ground in the 20s and 30s that Germany was the land of writers of so-called blut and boden, blood and soil, it was actually France in the 20s and 30s that produced writers who could be described as blut and boden writers. Jean Giono, Henri Bosco, Alphonse de Chateaubriand. His first work, Monsieur de Lourdes, which I confess I have not read, was published in 1911 and was awarded the prestigious Prix Jean uh, Corps in the same year and was highly praised by another pacifist, Roman Roland. Chateaubriand, when war came, however, did not refuse to serve, he did not grumble, he obtained a post in the ambulance service. And like another writer, Louis Ferdinand Saline, he was struck by the suffering of not only the people, but also the animals in the Great War. And it struck him, as he noted, that the animals were completely innocent, had no involvement in this struggle. And uh, in a superb collection of write writings entitled Les Pas Enchantés, published in 1938, he describes war as la danse de car, the dance of the evil snake. The new war or style of war of which the American War of Secession was an ominous precedent. And the invention of the so-called mini-ball in that war, a few years before the beginning of the American War of Secession, um, was a development in technology which took away from the romanticism of war in the sense that you used to have a clean bullet which would go through, because the mini-ball is probably the technical people among you now, expands as it goes into the body and shatters the bones instead of just clean breaking them. That's why the American surgeons in the War of Succession had such a terrible problem, it's truly appalling. He wrote, Dans la profonde nuit où nous étions plongés, le serpent se révélait. On commençait à voir briller dans l'air souchauffé, pas trancant, pas éclat, pas luisance, l'effroyable tissu de ses écailles. In the deep night, the snake of evil is arising, a curling round, and you can see its scales shining in the dark, the terrible <coughs> tissue of its scales. Most of Chateaubriand's writing, however, is not filled with the horror of the Lord of Misrule. His writing is mostly filled with a resplendent joy, 
and enduring love of rural France. In 1923, a new novel appeared, La Briere, a story of the then extensive marshland at the Loire Delta. The principal protagonist, a man called Awastin, is by no means a very endearing character. He's a family tyrant, he's obsessively jealous, but honorable in his way. In the novel, he receives a most unusual commission. A local enterprise, unidentified, has its eyes on the marshland. It wants to take over the marshland, which is called La Bouillère, for its own purposes and develop them. This would mean that the peasants on the land would be expropriated. With its friends in government, it will be able to expropriate the peasants at a low cost and ruin them. There is, however, a hope. The inhabitants of this wild part of France were granted ducal rights to the land by the Duke of Brittany. Everybody knows it, but how to prove it? The company, the state, will only operate on the basis of a written code, never on the basis of honor, never on the basis of natural justice. What has become of this written documentation? And Austin has to find it, if it can be found, the original letter patent accorded by Francois II of Brittany in 1461 to the people of the land. And this is a, there's a, I must about that the story is really quite moving. Chateaubriand was intensely and devoutly Catholic. And this is a symbolic moment. Austin goes on a kind of pilgrimage, and uh, he saves a woman who's more or less the local witch from a stoning. He doesn't like her either. He's also filled with this superstition. But some impulse within him compels him to save her. And he takes her back to a hovel, which is described in detail as very most unpleasant. And this, uh, this lady is effusive. This old crone is effusive with thanks. It's a clear sort of Christian reverence. You know, if you help the least of my brethren, you're helping me. And she tries every possible thing to offer him what, what could help him. And she offers him herbal tea. And there's a slightly unpleasant suggestion of even physical favors because she's absolutely desperate. And he's appalled. He's got going back like this. And he, the whole time he's trying to get out of this hovel and get on with his job. And he said, oh, I've got some old family papers. I've got anything you'd like to look at, my family histories. I'm not interested in your bloody family history. And finally, out of politeness, he says, and I can get away. So he just has a look. I have to read this in French because you get the feeling of it. I think you'll understand. You can probably guess what's going to happen. Il l'a retiré de parmi les autres, et comme il l'a retourné, he's looking at these papers, examiné l'écriture, voilà que sa figure se lit à changer, à blémir, à revoir un air de terreur, comme si le mirror de quelque honoraire de brière venait de lui faire la révélation du soleil bleu de minuit. So he's suddenly sort of transfixed. Bon Dieu de bon Dieu, bon Dieu de bon Dieu, bon Dieu de bon Dieu. C'était tout le mot qui sortait de lui. Mais les grosses anguilles durent longtemps du fond de la rive de Bombaran. Bon Dieu de bon Dieu Il essayait de lire, mais ses yeux se couvraient d'une voix. Il suffoquait. Of course, it's the paper, it's the letter paper. Nos chers et bien amis de la veille de notre conseil, ces mêmes présentes, données à Versailles. Bon Dieu cria-t-il en se dressant tout debout. Les voilà That's how he finds the paper. So it's, it's, it's a great moment. Uh, in 1938, Chateaubriand's novel La Réponse du Seigneur was published. This is the tale of a young man, a, a law student, who is rambling through rural France with a pack on his back, as students at least in the past were wont to do, and probably still do. Chateaubriand describes with loving and lavish detail an old manor house which the student finds by chance, led there by Providence. France is a blessed with old manor houses, as anybody who's gone off the beaten track in France will know. And 
in this old manor house, he, he finds a man who really explains and shows him the meaning of the land, the meaning of France, the meaning of tradition, and he is transformed by this and says that he will continue this tradition. It's a, a very sentimental novel. It's a very religious novel. It's a very quiet novel. It's a very gentle novel. And I would almost say it's an esoteric account of the, the discovery by the student of his own soul. That is a background for a person who you know, belongs to that group of people normally regarded by the left as hate-filled, as evil, and so on. And Al Alphonse de Chateaubriand strikes me always as an exceedingly, almost embarrassingly gentle man. He was impressed, deeply impressed, by what he saw of National Socialist Germany, but he never lost sight, and indeed none of these four writers ever lost sight of, whatever they might be subsequently said of them, their prime loyalty to France. In 1937, Chateaubriand published La Gerbe des Forces, in which he saw Hitler as something of a messianic figure who was sent by destiny to rejuvenate the white race and redeem a corrupt world. Under the German occupation, he was chairman of the governing committee, which uh, published a paper called La Gerbe. The editor was Marc Augier, who incidentally wrote an excellent novel or two himself under the pseudonym saint Lou. After the war, Chateaubriand, although he had... Uh, as far as I am aware, not threatened anybody, not harmed anybody, was condemned to death. But he retreated to a monastery in Austria, in Kutzbüttel, and I haven't yet researched the exact circumstances. I would like to do so. Um, but he was obviously protected there because that's where he died in, I think, of 1948. Here are one or two sayings which I've taken from Les Pas Enchantés because I think they are quite thought-provocative and they're very concise. I'll give them in French and then translate them. They're very brief. Désapprendre le mal. Learn to unlearn evil. L'humanité avec son empiété s'est identifiée avec le non-être. Voilà le drame, il n'est pas ailleurs. Humanity in its impiousness has begun to identify itself with non-being. That is the drama. The drama is nowhere else. Les arbres, les prairies, les rivières m'apprennent plus de choses que les hommes. Trees, meadows, and rivers teach me more than human beings. À ce carrefour des deux chemins dont l'un mène au plaisir, l'autre à la joie, at the two, at the crossroads of life, you have to choose between taking the path of pleasure or the path of joy. There's a lot. Si tu es malheureux, si tu es misérable, si tu ne trouves pas de saveur au fait de l'existence, c'est parce que tu ne vois plus la purité. If you are unhappy, if you are miserable, if you no longer enjoy the facts of existence, it is because you no longer see purity. So, now we turn in a manner of speaking to what at first glance might well seem a shift from the sublime to the ridiculous, from Alphonse de Chateaubriand to Louis Ferdinand Céline. The contrast is as violent, I think, as it could be. No Blutenboden here, more like vomit and pavement. <laughs> Céline is an urban scamp. His writing is gutsy, quite literally, and I, I don't wish to cause offence. I see there are a lot of ladies here, and I, I think some of this should be removed. Céline is quite an offensive writer. Uh, Céline uh, achieved something quite astonishing. 
In the 1950s, his a second novel was republished in the popular Livre de Poche, or something like the French uh, Penguin. And the French in the 50s were well known as being, I mean, they're called in Britain, they're called quite decadent. They were certainly very tolerant. And D.H. Lawrence's Lady Shatty's Lover was published, as you know, probably in English in France and shipped over and so on. And uh, it was too much for them. They actually, I mean, not on the topic of the politics, they actually censored some of it. It was just too scatological and offensive. And for France to the popular press to have censored Celine was quite an achievement. And in my edition, I'm reading this, and then suddenly there are dot, 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 and that's where it's been censored. Anyway, uh, he's an urban writer, ill at ease, far from city streets. Uh, he was born in humble circumstances in a suburb of Paris, Courbois, and died in 1961 in another suburb of Paris. Uh, Celine, it's a pen name, by the way, his birth name was Louis Ferdinand de Touche, uh, served in the First World War, and uh, his denunciation of the war took a very different form from Chateaubriand's, but the strength of feeling is comparable. Unlike Chateaubriand, Celine did not serve for very long. He was physically handicapped as a result of his wounds and retired from active service in 1915. His best-known work appeared in 1932, Voyage au bout de la nuit, in which he accounts his experiences of the First World War. Uh, this is totally amazing, because all other accounts are deadly serious. Celine's is not serious, and at the same time you know this person was wounded, you know what he saw. And in some ways, and that gives it its strength. It is burlesque, comic, grotesque. The anti-hero of the novel, Badamou, is in dispute with a friend in a cafe, as French people like to be, when a military recruiting band marches past them, trumpets sounding, cymbals clashing. In a rush of alcohol-supported bravado, Badamou enlists and joins the regiment on the spot. And at first it is great fun, marching along, having flowers thrown at him by pretty girls, the experience he hasn't previously had, he says. But the march continues and continues. The sun goes behind a cloud, the rain begins, the girls go home. But he has to continue marching. Thus begins his military career, he says. The next thing we know, without any explanation in between, he's on the Western Front. I'm wondering what he's doing there. A group of Germans who he's never met are apparently trying to kill him, and he spends time trying to work out why they should be killing him. He says, obviously, there's some terrible misunderstanding. <laughs> because he doesn't even know them. And he doesn't want to kill them. He's never killed anyone in his life. He's never wanted to kill anyone in his life. Certainly not anyone he's not even met. But there's a French officer who seems to be just as mad or even madder than the Germans who's walking up and down, shouting at him to try to kill them while they try to kill him. This officer, Count Selin, is completely mad. He's sauntering up and down with a swagger stick and seems to regard the bullets singing around him as nothing more than wasps. The officer's main focus of interest, however, is what has happened to the breakfast bread. And he gets increasingly angry when a sub-officer is una unable to explain to him what has happened to the bread and croissant. However, the angry demands of the commanding officer are rudely interrupted by a German shell, which lands bang in the middle of them all and blows them all to shreds. <laughs> Celine describes in loving and rather stomach-turning detail how the guts of the commanding officer hang in strips of tripe, which remind him of his, uh, the butcher's shop he used to know, from the open stomach. He's the only person who survives this. The adventures of the narrator continue like this for hundreds of pages, in a remarkable argo and astonishing energy. Major preoccupations of the writer are sex, which he usually does not get much of, and when he does, he messes it up, and all kinds of bodily functions. I won't go into the details of those, but the novel has been translated, I think, twice. 
There is no peace and little happiness in this hysterical but sometimes hilarious tale. Badmandu's misadventures also take him to the United States, where he suffers especially from the fact, let's just give you an idea of Selim, there were apparently, I can believe it, no public uh, toilets with doors at that time, and he was appalled by all the Wall Street businessmen um, yeah, discussing business and doing it, so to speak. This novel was an immense success with the left, surprise, surprise, and was widely praised. Trotsky read it and commented on it, and so did Paul Nizar, a leading communist novelist of the day. So, like all successful Western novelists popular with the left, Selim was invited at state expense to the Soviet Union. He accepted the invitation. On his return, he wrote a short pamphlet called Mea Culpa. The Soviet <laughs> Union was not spared his cynicism. Let's give a few. I don't know how much time we have, but I'll give a... No, how much time do we have, actually? Lots of time. Lots of time. Oh, that's good. Okay. Uh, he says... La grande prétention au bonheur, voilà les noms impostures. This idea that the state can give you happiness, what nonsense. Life is a bit more complicated than that. Um, life makes people venomous, it makes them uh, sickly, it makes them, this is Celine's word, it really is, I'm translating it correctly, it makes them undrinkable. Oh, there's no happiness in an existence and the state makes it worse. And the worst people are all the happy people who try to make you happy as the devil is their best friend. So it goes on. On le fait crever le peuple par la misère, par son amour propre. Was it vanité d'abord? La prétention tue comme le reste. Pretension kills like everything else. You make people miserable by pleading to their vanity. And so it goes on. It will not surprise you to learn that Selim was not invited to the Soviet Union again. Uh, his stories, uh, Selim, when he was interviewed and so on, he never took himself very seriously, and he always said he just wrote for money, and his books weren't important. Um, uh, a lot of what he did was with tongue-in-cheek. Um, his second novel, as intensely biographical as the first, uh, Hero Has His Name, uh, is obviously enough an autoportrait, and is an even more amazing romp, a loopy-de-loop -loop of the most violent scatological kind. Uh, it is said, and probably correctly, that English vocabulary is bigger than French vocabulary. But if you would ever doubt it, you might doubt it trying to read uh, Mora Credit, uh, which means something like death on credit. It has been translated as death on the installment plan, but I, I think that loses the joke. It's death on credit, there's no credit in death. And it's also, the French also could mean death to credit, so it's kind of a pun in French. I found reading this tale of woe, wretchedness, cussedness, vomiting, scratching, frigging, scrounging, and all-round losing to be a pretty depressing experience, both in terms of the content and the language. Uh, to give you a taste of a slightly sense of this, uh, of the kind of direction we're going here, um, when I read a book in French, uh, my French is okay, but of course there are new words. I try to remember to write them down in my notebook, and if I look in my notebook, new words I've written down, I always know which bits have come from a Celine novel by the kind of vocabulary. Uh, just give you a few here. And I know this is from Celine. I didn't have to check this from my notebook. I'm sure it's Celine. Filin's junk, chialet, blub, lompe, take a swig of a drink, eclabousse, splatter, savoltre, wallow, boostify is not, rogaton, scrap, ween, male prostitute, fiel, bile, gal, escabies. The opening lines of Moacredi have achieved a certain status and fame of their own, and rightly so. And here comes an interesting point. For all his nastiness, and there's no question of that, I think, 
uh, Céline was an immense wordmaster and cared immensely about the French language. And in fact, I think his patriotism is mostly patriotism of language. He uh, was sent to England where he absolutely refused to learn English. And in exile in Germany, uh, he describes with horror the German language, which he considered appalling. And his, his novel is full of heil heil, <coughs> he says in a very derogative way. I mean, it's, anyway, uh, the beginning of this is quite lyrical. I'll just read a very short part of it. I would like to read French, I'll translate it straight into, into, into English. It's untypical for him because it begins very slowly. Nous voici encore seuls, tout cela est si lent, si lourd, si triste. Bientôt je serai vieux, et ce sera enfin fini. Il est venu tant de monde dans ma chambre, ils ont dit des choses, ils ne m'ont pas dit grand chose, ils sont partis, ils sont devenus vieux, misérable et long, chacun dans un coin du monde. Yeah, here we are, and it's very depressing, so be prepared to be depressed. I, it's not the last writer on my list, because otherwise it would be too gloomy. Uh, we are all alone again. Everything is so slow, so heavy, so sad. I will soon become old, and soon it will be the end. A lot of people have come into my room. He was a doctor. Uh, they said a lot of things, but they didn't say anything much important, and they left again. And they will become old and miserable and slow in a corner of the world. And Celine was, grew up in very sad circumstances. And perhaps you will see a little bit the direction my talk is going. These four writers are four points of a compass for me. Possibly four points of a human or even a, just a fascist compass, how you want to see it. There is the no, ennobling, the aristocratic Chateaubriand. Here we have the cry of pain. Here we have the anger. Um, yes, I don't want to go too much because it depresses me too much, but just a little bit. Tout le chagrin des lettres depuis vingt ans bientôt s'est arrêté chez elle. It says that all the pain of his writing and everything has died with this, this is significant, this concierge who's just died and the novel begins with her death. And this plays a very important part because the novel goes on, some of it's quite funny, some of it's very funny actually. Um, but it has a positive ending, so it has a positive beginning and an ending, so it's not totally nihilistic. If I had to summarize this tale in one word, I'd say frenzy. It begins very slowly, but soon it's a non-stop, it's, it's a waterfall of language. It's written hysterically, it's 500 close pages of the most unbelievable French. Our hero's adventures take him uh, to a lot of places, but for an English audience, of course, he's taken to England, it's based on the truth which he describes as a land of permanent fog, non-stop drizzle or rain. He's sent by his despairing father, I mean, but his father is pretty nuts as well. I mean, it's, uh, his father has hysterical fits and just smashes all the furniture. I, I hope Ferdinand was exaggerating about that, but maybe not. And he's sent to learn English, that's about the only thing they think maybe he'll be able to do, at a gloomy Meanwell College in Kent, run by a Mr. and Mrs. Merriweather. Ferdinand, however, stubbornly refuses to learn English. If there is one uh, human thing that he's really attached to, it's the French language. Yeah, this is quite a job, because they're, they're, very, they're quite nice, Mr. and Mrs. Merriweather, and they try hard to do something for their money, because they've been paid by his father. His father, more or less, has a heart attack when he finds out that his son has no, learned no English at all, doesn't even know shop. That's a shop. He's, he's there in England two years. It's quite an achievement. He's very proud of this. Uh, he, 
they give up on him, so they, they give him the job of looking after an imbecile who can't speak. Because Selim can't speak English, well, the imbecile can't speak English either. So the imbecile goes around drooling, and Selim has to sort of wipe his mouth. Uh, the imbecile occasionally runs out of control and causes trouble, but Ferdinand's main interests are focused on Mrs. Merriweather, with whom he becomes completely sexually obsessed. Meanwhile, college faces bankruptcy in the face of more advanced competition from a new college, which will be equipped with all modern conveniences. In the meantime, it emerges that his feelings are somewhat reciprocated. And that Mrs. Merriweather, who may or may not be aware that Ferdinand has been watching her through a hole in the wall, I don't, it has to be someone, is this Celine? Um, by the way, there's a point where my 1952 Leave de Posh censors quite a lot, so I don't know exactly what goes on. Um, anyway, there is a scene where she seduces him. I really won't try to translate that because it's too rude, but I'll give you sort of tell you, you get a feeling of it if I read the French, if anyone knows notion. Maybe I haven't, uh, probably just as well, because it's really quite. Um, uh, All right, so I have got it. Well, I just. I give you an idea of this. Yeah, basically, she jumps on him, and it, it, he's completely appalled. Although he's had these sexual fantasies, the reality—I mean, this clown—and when he actually, she's there for him. He, he can't cope with it at all. Although she is a bit overpowering by all accounts. J'attends un petit pas léger, un glissement. C'est elle, un souffle. Je suis fait bonheur. Je pouvais plus calter. Elle attend pas, elle m'a pas montré d'un seul élan si le pas c'est bien ça, je prends tout le choc dans le membrure. Je me trouve étreint dans l'élan, congestionné, replati sous les caresses. Je suis trituré, je n'existe plus, c'est elle, tout la masse qui me fonce, et la pêche, ça glue, j'ai la bouille coincée, j'étrange, je protège un plomb, j'ai peu de qu'électrophore. Le vieux peut rentrer, je me revuse, je veux me dégager par-dessus. Je me récroquille et j'arcobule, je rentre sur mes propres débris. Je suis repris, étendu, sonné à nouveau. C'est une avalanche de tendresse, je m'écroule sur les baissés fous, les liches, les saccades. J'ai la figure en compote, je trouve plus mes troupeaux respirer. Ferdinand, Ferdinand, Ferdinand. So it goes on, it's hot stuff. <laughs> okay. Um... So, so up to this point, the chap wasn't, wasn't very political. Um, however, he produced in the 30s three violently, uh, well, let's say very strong, yeah, I mean, one of them violently anti-Semitic pamphlets, Les Baudras, École des Cadavres, and Bagatelle pour un Massacre. And uh, by the request of his wife, these are not published today, well, and she has the copyright. Uh, she's an old lady, and uh, obviously when she's deceased, they will be. Uh, they can be seen on the internet. They're pretty strong stuff. Um, Selim concentrates his uh, disappointments on the chosen people and, and really lets, lets loose. And under the Germans, of course, this went down reasonably well. And Selim's quite cynical about it. He made money. And these pamphlets were republished and had a few sort of uh, pictures, rather unflattering pictures of, of members of the, that race. And, of course, this didn't do Selene any good in terms of public relations for the future, as, as the fortunes of the Germans declined. In, 1994, in 1944, he escaped. Uh, he received, like, as they all did, these little packets with coffins, because, of course, you know, the French resistance were quite unscrupulous about killing anybody that they didn't wish to see after the so-called liberation. In 1944, he escaped with the German forces to Germany, and his peregrinations through bombed-out Germany are a further hell ride and also pretty hilarious. Uh, he describes one scene he arrives in Berlin, and people are still in this hotel trying to keep up standards. 
a whole bloody building's been bombed out. And this person generally is very correct, and he has his own Oh, yes, Zimmer 100. Well, there's no Zimmer 100. It's only blown up. <laughs> so you sort of look up and, and yeah, it's, it's good stuff, but it's really quite amazing. I really can recommend these books if, if that appeals to you. Um, it's not everyone's taste, of course, but uh, going back to Moacredi, it ends, funnily enough, with his uncle Edward, who is the one good chap, or the one level chap, and keeps putting Celine on his feet again, and I, it's just my theory, I haven't seen this written anywhere, but Moacredi begins with this concierge, who you never find out about, you don't know, she's Madame Belanger, you don't know who she was really, she just died, that's how it begins, and he says, we're all going to die, so it's pretty depressing. And at the end, this Uncle Edward helps him. And I just wonder, because everybody, a lot of people say he's completely nihilistic, this writer. Um, there's a positive ending, a positive beginning. And Celine was, despite this one hatred that he definitely had, a complete humanist and a man of great feeling, outraged human suffering. There's a, a very simple and moving piece in uh, Voyage au bout de la nuit where he describes uh, how a shell smashes people and a lot of uh, people thrown off their horses. And he says that the German and the French horses, when they see each other, they come together and jump around together like innocent children. And he said, yeah, because they're not political. They, they haven't got, they just, they realize, oh, I'm a horse. They never think, well, you're a German horse, you're a French horse. I think it's very moving. <clears throat> I come to another writer. Um, I, I was saying, perhaps I should say at the end, Salim was, yes, um, he, Got, gained a reprieve, he was in exile in Denmark, he gained a reprieve, um, and he spent the last years of his life completely unrepented, unrepentant, surrounded by animals, so, who incidentally, he was quite clear, much preferred to, to people. Um, that's something he shared with his, his uh, a feeling he shared with his wife, um, and the house was just full of animals. And in fact, I think this cat was called uh, Brebeil, was quite a famous cat, because this, this cat goes unprotesting all through Germany with him, doesn't express any political opinion, of course, but the cat just is very loyal and faithful and goes there with him. Anyway, Celine died unrepentant among his animals, including a parrot and various cats and dogs, and quite unyielding in his, his views. Another writer, who is an urban writer, but makes a dramatic contrast to Celine, as Celine does to Chateaubriand, was Drieu La Rochelle. Drieu La Rochelle was completely unlike Celine in that he was not vulgar, he was not poorly dressed. I mean, you see pictures of Celine, he looks like an absolute tramp. Uh, Drew La Rochelle was elegant, suave, sophisticated, loved women, and unlike Celine, seemed to be extremely successful, and uh, very good at making money. Uh, Celine made money, but immediately lost it. Uh, Drew La Rochelle seemed to have some sense of spending it properly. Um, and uh, Drew La Rochelle was successful in marrying twice for money. Um, like Celine, Drew La Rochelle was wounded in the war, but unlike Celine, he does not seem to have been much of a pacifist, although put a question mark on that. Uh, like Ernst Junger, the German writer, there is a strong hard line of nihilism and death wish and pessimism in his work too. His several novels, though, are much more like narrations or dialogues uh, than the three other writers, and the masculine style recalls Hemingway, so if you like Hemingway, you would probably like Drew La Rochelle, and if not, not. Drew La Rochelle's roots were Norman, and this was important for him because his attention was very much turned towards the Nordic part of France, and he was somewhat ashamed to be French. I mean, he wanted to be English. I think he had this complex. He was in Oxford. He was very impressed by it. He had an English tailor 
and uh, he seems to have thoroughly enjoyed it. He liked the motto, random est ut sit mensana in corpore sana, which I think is the Eton motto, isn't it? should pray for a healthy mind in a healthy body. Drew's life was, was, was quite eventful. He married three times, the first time to a Jewish woman, which he bitterly regretted later, but there's some hypocrisy about that because he got quite a lot of money out of her. He had innumerable women friends, mistresses as they would be, be called then, and his relationships form an important part of his novels. He was spiritually an enormously generous man. Even before the war, and as it is in life, generosity evokes generosity in others. Um, he was a very generous man, for example, at the time of the deportations in France, he saw to it that his first wife, although he was extremely unpleasant about her in his writing, uh, was not deported. He was a man of, of some influence with the German occupation forces. Much more Céline. Céline was a bit of an embarrassment. In fact, the Germans were rightly rather suspicious of him, and they used him, but uh, they didn't really care for him. Whereas Jules Rochelle was... was uh, Jules Rochelle was the sort of person you could invite anyway. He wouldn't be an embarrassment. Um, in contrast to Chateaubriand, he didn't consider himself much of a patriot. He wrote in 1934 that he didn't fight the, in the Great War for France, but he fought to be among men. <clears throat> and this is an interesting uh, quotation from him. He wrote a lot. Le communisme, this is on communism. Le communisme n'a pas grande importance, c'est un mot. Un homme fort vaut toujours mieux finalement que les mots. Communism is of no big importance one way or another, it's just a word. It's the strong man that matters, and always will, more than words. In the interwar years, he spent uh, much time meandering from one political and artistic group to another. For a long time, he was on the left. He got to know a lot of leftists, including Jean-Paul Sartre, who by some accounts he kept out of trouble. And during the occupation, he managed to ensure that Jean-Paul Sartre's plays, two plays were put on, um, Louis Clos and I think Les Marsales, Interest of just by note about Huey Clo, uh, Oswald Mosley said about Huey Clo, it's essentially a fascist play and certainly the only thing for which Jean Paul Sartre will be remembered in a hundred years. Uh, he, he said that in 1950, I think, so we've got about 20 years of it, and he may be right. If you go now and ask any student, Jean Paul Sartre, we think Mosley may prove to be right on that. People who still produce this play and all those novels, I don't know who reads them today, Chemin de la Liberté and all that, but they still go on producing his play. Anyway, um, <clears throat> oh yes, he wrote about the war, like Pound in some ways very negatively, but unlike Pound, he served in, uh, with distinction in the First World War. And he has this very negative description of it. <laughs> This, well, I can translate this directly, it doesn't translate so much. This modern war, this war of iron, not of muscle, this war of science, not of, of art, this war of industry and commerce, this war of offices, this war of newspapers, this war of generals and not of leaders, this war made for everybody except for those who are fighting in it, this war of advanced civilization. Uh, Drew visited South America and wrote a very romanticized account of his adventures there in Omar Chaval. It's a sort of romanticized dream of South America in which the narrator is only an artist filled with admiration for a sort of Hugo Chavez figure who dreams of creating a greater Bolivia. And this Hugo Chavez figure fails, but um, he fails with grandeur. So it's, it's a tribute to greatness as such. 
Drew Rochelle was enormously influenced and uh, impressed by power. He was something of a Nietzschean, and he was quite ready, I think, to, might have been quite ready to serve under anybody who was powerful. I mean, he's the nearest to the conventional image, perhaps, of a fascist. In Rebeau's Bourgeoisie, he describes his family, which is pretty awful. Again, I hope, my God, these people really I, mean, I hope his father isn't quite as bad as he's portrayed in this novel, but maybe he was. He's a sort of French Willy Lomax, a sort of a real loser who spends all his wife's money and then has a kind of nervous collapse. In Le Feu Follet, which is a very popular book even to this day, he explores the consciousness of a man, a drug addict, on the road to self-destruction a path which uh, Drew was himself to take some years later. Significantly, he was co-translator into French of D.H. Lawrence, the man who died. And uh, finally, we come to Gilles, which was Drew's account of his political pilgrimage. Gilles can mean in French uh, something like the village idiot. Um, and the, the, the person in this novel... Oh, by the way, all these novelists, it strikes me, are, are very, very modest, actually. That's another interesting point. Drew Rochelle constantly said, nobody's going to read my books later, and I'm a failure. God, I mean, this, this person was loved by women. You know, he wrote these novels which were published. I, I die of envy, and, and he says he's a failure. Gilles is a sort of comic figure, as I say. Um, the reader, I think, recognizes this, the amusing part of the novel, long before the hero, Gilles Gombier, what direction his politics are going to, you know. Um, it's quite clear, we want to say to this, hey, Gilles Gombier, you know, you want to be with the ultra-right. You don't like Parliament, you don't like democracy, you have contempt for all your left-wing comrades. But it takes, Gilles Gombier is a bit slow, so it takes about 300 pages of the book. And in 1934, with the riots in France against Parliament, he's with his left-wing friends, one of them is obviously one of the chosen people, and he completely gets carried away with his loathing for the corruption, self-seeking and careerism of parliamentary government Oh, these people in Parliament, they should be tied up and thrown into the Seine. And then it's my subsequent, Monsieur Gambier, vous êtes fasciste. And it's just like the kind of scales fall, oh, with scales fall from his eyes. <laughs> Took him a long time to realize that. And then he, he, he volunteers for service on the national side, of course, in the Spanish Civil War. And the novel ends with his firing at Republicans. And the concluding comment of the book, this is an interesting point. I, maybe someone else has seen it. I haven't seen it noted anywhere. Um, the ending of the novel is very, very close, when not identical to the ending of Jean-Paul Sartre's La Mort dans l'âme, or Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls, which is essentially one person with a machine gun who's going to die, who's found his destiny in action, fighting the enemy. And, uh, well, Drew Rochelle was there first. Uh, I think that Hemingway and Jean-Paul Sartre must have taken it from his novel. Uh, the novel ends like this, it's my translation, for better or for worse, and yes, this is the end of Gilles. Yes, the mother of God, the mother of God makes man, God who creates, who suffers within his creation, who dies and who is born again. I shall always be heretical. The gods who die and are reborn, Dionysus, Christ, nothing is made which does not make itself through blood. We must ceaselessly die in order ceaselessly to be born again. The Christ of cathedrals, the great God, white and virile, a king, a king's son. He found his rifle, he went to the vantage point, and began to shoot carefully. It's the end of the novel. Andrew Lorishaw took his own life in 1945. 
disdaining an offer from André Mulroy, who was with the Free French, to let him enlist under a false name in his own brigade. And one of the touching things in these accounts is uh, to what extent, from both sides, uh, there was a, a personal comradeship which went right over the deepest political divisions. I'm, I don't know if this is thinkable now. Uh, courage, steadfastness, and above all, I think, pride characterized this remarkable man who, despite his often churlish attitude to women, seems to have been greatly admired by them. And uh, his first wife, as I said, was half Jewish, and she looked after him at the end of the war, which was probably a quid pro quo, because he'd saved her from deportation. Um, take that how you like it. But anyway, he finally succeeded in killing himself, which is exactly what he wanted to do. And I come to the last of my four writers. Again, it was very, very different. Just begin with a short, he's the only one I think, now Drew Rochelle wrote some poems. He's the only one who wrote quite a lot of poetry. That's Robert Brasila. Et si demain, ô ma jeunesse, sur le quai gris, sous l'arbre nu, le bel été s'efface et cesse, qu'importe à moi qui t'ai connu. And if tomorrow, my youth, on the grey quayside, the naked tree stands, and the beautiful summer has gone and ceased to be, what matter if I have known you? This, from a poem by Robert Brasilaf, recalls a French poet whom he much admired, Pierre de Ronsard. And cueillez dès aujourd'hui les roses de la vie, pluck the roses of life today, for tomorrow you grow old. It's a common theme. It was one that absolutely obsessed Robert Brasilak because he was obsessed, I think, with youth. Uh, with Robert Brasilak, we moved from the North and the Nordic in Jules La Rochelle to the Mediterranean, from the European continent more to the colonies. Brasilak was a literary man through and through, a critic first and foremost, a writer, a writer by calling and by love. He was born the son of an officer in 1999 in Perpignan. That's relevant because it's southern France. And also interesting is that his father was killed by Moroccan rebels in 1914. Uh, he was the only one of these four writers to be too young to have served in the First World War, but he did serve in the Second World War, so all these writers have been soldiers. And what's impressive about them is that with the possible example of Jura La Rochelle, they're all absolutely not cut out to be soldiers, but they did it. His writing is dedicated to youth, and it was in admiration for youth, as he frequently had occasion to remark that he admired and was immediately drawn to fascism, no doubts, as Jules Rochelle had. But his patriotism and Catholic faith made him a natural enemy of communism. There are none of the political doubts or changes in Brasilac which we will find in Jules Rochelle, none of the high religious esotericism of Chateaubriand, and not the atheism and bitterness of Céline. He was a great admirer of Virgil, of the classical Greek and Roman writers, of cinema. He was an outstanding film critic. He wrote, by the way, with his brother-in-law, Maurice Bardesch, who was editor after the war of a very successful publication called Défense de l'Occident. And I think the two features which seem to dominate Brasilac are his enthusiasms and his joviality. There are plenty of people who came to dislike his politics, but... Nobody, as far as I know, could ever say a word against the man at a personal level, unless you want to include the biographer Catline recently, which is, I think, just beneath contempt to have, anyway, to have a person like that um, writing a biography of Brasilia. But anybody who knew him, I uh, don't know a word against the man. 
He visited Spain during the time of the Civil War, where he unhesitatingly took the nationalist side and subsequently wrote and published a history of the Spanish War. Um, he wrote a very sad novel called The Marchand des Oiseaux about an old lady who takes in two waifs who do not respond to her generosity. And this is, of course, a kind of criticism of the idea that you know, humanity is naturally good and if you are nice to people, they will become nice. We know all about that political implication. The old lady is not rewarded at all. These, these are bad boys and uh, they don't kill her, but they kill another, another lady and it breaks her heart. So it's a fairly depressing story. Um, he wrote a study of Corneille, the great French dramatist, and he edited an edition of the trial of Jean d'Arc. Jean d'Arc was a sort of uh, icon for Brasilac, for she incorporated youth, purity, and lightness against the gravitas and calculated policy of established state and church. Politically, although he was drawn to fascism, there is in Brasilac, as I think there is in, well, I'm sure there is in Céline, a strong attraction to anarchism and a distrust of not only government, but even of adults. In his most famous novel, Comme le temps passe, as time passes, um, I was overwhelmed by a sense of Brasilas yearning for a, a sunken garden, the hidden domain, the lost earthly paradise, which mankind could have made of the earth and did not. It traces the early life story of twin stars René and Florence, it has been suggested, and this may be true, that Brasilac has fallen more obviously out of favor than other, certainly than Drew Rochelle and Celine, because his writing, not only because of his politics, because his writing is very idealistic and that many people would find it sentimental. Before and during the war until 1943, Brasilac was editor of a magazine called Je suis partout, before resigning in favor of Pierre-Antoine Cousteau, who's the brother of the famous Jacques Cousteau, you know, who did the underwater marine film uh, films. Uh, he was more consistently anti-Semitic than Brasilac. Brasilac once described himself as a mild anti-Semite. Brasilac had an interesting uh, approach or reaction to the occupation of France, which I think is interesting. He considered France to be in a civil war. He had no particularly bitter feelings against those who chose to side with de Gaulle, but he considered France to be in a civil war. And in that civil war, as in Spain, outside powers, on the one side Germany, on the other side America and the United States, were supporting the two parties in France. He saw it in that sense in a very French way, as a tragedy of a civil war. Uh, at the time of the Allied invasion of France and advance on Paris, he took refuge, he's no big hero, and this I also find touching, he took refuge in a flat owned by one of his many admirers, but he gave himself up when the Allies resorted to the time old trick that they constantly said it was so revolting the Germans did it, well they did it as well, and arrested his sister and aged mother and waited for Brasilov to give himself up, which he did. He could have fled to Germany, but he knowingly chose death, and I would say even gladly chose death. For frequently in his writing, he stresses his rejection and horror of age. Many writers, including Francois Mauriac, now a lot of people on the right are very cynical about Francois Mauriac. He was a, a Roman Catholic, very convinced Roman Catholic writer who was close to the resistance. But I think he had quite a lot of guts. He could have been arrested any time by the Gestapo. He wasn't. And Francois Mauriac did what he could to get a reprieve for Brasilac. Uh, there was a petition put round that Brasilac shouldn't be executed. Um, Interestingly, one person who 
notable French writer, plenty of leftist signage, Jean-Paul Sartre didn't. Comments superfluous there, I think, really. Um, but I, I do believe that, in a sense, Brazil, I welcome that death. And I'd just like to finish uh, with, uh, well, more or less finish with one of his poems, if you can bear with me. I'll read it in French, and I have got a trans working translation of it. Les idoles d'argent. He wrote this from prison, by the way. He was in prison in France, uh, waiting to be shot. And he wrote this in prison. I think he had to smuggle it out. It wasn't allowed to, to write. Les idoles d'argent qui se sont élevées s'écrouleront un jour sur le base de sable et la nuit tombera sur leur forme rêvée. Seigneur, nous qui ont enfermé sous ces portes, nous qui ont verrouillé derrière ces verrous, nous pour qui les soldats de ces murailles fortes font dans les corridors sonner le pas à clous. Ô oh Seigneur, vous savez que couché sur la paille ou sur le dur ciment des prisons sans hublot, nous avons su garder en nous vaille que vaille l'espoir sans défaillance envers des jours plus beaux. Nous avons rassemblé les anciennes tendresses, nous avons désigné sur le plâtre des murs les magnifiques portraits de nos saintes jeunesses, et nos cœurs sans remords savent qu'ils restent purs. La sortie au dehors dans le sang rouge baigne, et l'ennemi déjà s'imagine immortel. Mais lui seul croit encore au longtemps de son règne, et nos barreaux, Seigneur, ne cachent pas le ciel. So, translate, try to translate. The work of the wicked is perishable clay. The idols of gold they have raised will collapse on the base of sand one day, and the night overtake the phantom shapes. Lord, we whom they have restrained behind closed doors, we whom they have locked and barred, we for whom their soldiers along high walls make the corridors sound to the echo of the jailer's hobnailed boots, you know that stretched out on a straw bed or on the hard cement of walls with no windows and only bars, we have cherished within us and come what may unfailing trust in the advent of a better day. We have gathered the ancient affections, we who have sketched on the plaster of blank walls the magical images of our sacred youth, and our hearts are without regret. We remain ultimately pure. Folly outside bathes in blood crimson, and already our enemy supposes he is immortal. The bars of our prison cannot conceal the sky, and only he believes that he will rule forever. So returning to, to the question I asked myself at the beginning, what common thread do we find among these writers? I think it is this. Uh, it is a rejection of a life as a career and taking life as a calling, a complete dedication to what they believe. That's the first point. They never flinched a moment from being themselves and giving themselves to the cause in which they believed. Not one of them showed regret. Not one of them bowed before the hypocritical rightnessness of the victors of 1945, the would-be good guys, the preachers of virtue, whose creed is gold and always gold and always more gold. For me, it is a matter of comfort that in a strange way, they all found the death which they sought. Brasilac, the death of a martyr, like Joan of Arc and Jean Chenier, who he so much ignored, Céline mocking and tormenting his critic with absurd, extreme, and provocative and none-too-serious responses, Jateaubriand in the quiet of a monastery, 
Andrea Rochelle taking his own life, and despite the calumny of many complete commentators, not out of fear, but out of pride. So these writers for me are a solace and to some extent an inspiration. We're so flooded with information that we may consider it hard to make judgments. And if we read the comments of their enemies, these writers may well appear wrong-headed and worse. But I think we need only to rely on our instincts and not on the arguments of our others to realize that these writers can be an inspiration. And I should like just to finish with my own homage to Robert Brasilak. I wrote many years ago, 1979. <coughs> Comme le temps passe. Homage to Robert Brasilak. Comme le temps passe. Robert Brasilak. My homage is for the way you lived to die that a coward cannot emulate. You knew and wrote, reason turns malevolent after childhood, disperses and slumps into mature consideration. You could not have lived with yourself after failing, so the leaden sentence was a gift. Better to die as you die than the fluency and grace of certainty and light, like poor Poussel, than grapple with compromise and penance, to win years in retirement and shame, dying defiant, Sin Panuelo, the Castilian way. Happiness is a bagatelle to a fascist. Dying well, essential. Dying well redeems the quintessence. Not delaying, not complaining, nor dreading. Unbitter witness. The theatrical end. Many shrink and strive to safety. Delay, complain, and dread, and run away and hide, and sacrifice their pride for a doubtful grace. Not you, a thief or cheat. Perhaps a busy undertaker. Coffins lined in neatly ordered Rome. The bubonic East has broken out, the facts. Each issue packed and bracketed, childhood spoiled and spilled, venom packed away in lofts or cellars, then taken out and filmed. Nothing like that within you. So they held their tryst with you. Many shrink and strive to safety. They show their heads where they fear no censure. The dumb speak no treason, the illiterate pen no error. They called you traitor and acolyte to murder, but no betrayal was within you. Those who mattered to you will wait, will understand. Carlists on horseback, ragamuffin Spain, the islands of childhood. You walk out to them, punctual, formal and correct, in the fields of great faith. Le paradis terrestre, martyr's etiquette at the shore, at the beginning and later, running and returning, your last breath faithful, hear the sea roar, comme le temps passe, Robert Brasilac. <laughs>